Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Calvary, Sydney. Um, ben got sick this week, so uh, we're having a little break from Genesis, and we'll be uh, going into the book of Hebrews. So we'll start in Hebrews chapter 2. So if you don't know me, my name's Bob. I'm one of the elders here, and uh, as I said, Pastor Ben's uh, not COVID, but just a, a bad cold. So he'd prefer not to get you guys sick, so he did the right thing and stayed away, which is a good thing. So um, the normal uh, events on for the week are not on this week, um, and my Bible study is taking a break this week as well. So uh, if you are planning on coming and logging in, no one will be there because I won't open up the, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the link. And the youth or the adults, the young adults, whether we're happening on Tuesday or not, we'll just see, depending on how Ben's feeling by, by Tuesday. So, all right, we might just pray before we start. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for just the ability to come and praise you and, and sing your praises for who you are, for what you've done, for what you're going to do. Um, I pray that you, Lord, would fill me with your spirit, that you would fill us all and open our ears and open our hearts and open our minds to the things that you want us to know, the things that uh, uh, we can take on board and apply to our lives. And um, we just ask that you would do this in, in, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to be in uh, Hebrews chapter 2. We'll go through the whole uh, chapter my Bible study has been going through Hebrews, and um, this we did this a couple weeks ago, and it just happened to be that uh, I talked to Ben a few weeks ago and said, listen, with the amount of COVID going on again and, and the bad flus that, um, you know, we've all been home, so obviously our immune systems have got, haven't gotten uh, the normal, uh, uh, I guess, um, used to doing all that stuff we can expect to get colds, and certainly Ben's got it, so here you go. Um, so there's a question always that um, people will ask, why did God have to become a man? Like, why? And the Hebrews chapter 2 takes us through a lot of those reasons why. Um, I used to teach a, a Bible study at work years ago when I worked at Integral Energy, and we had a guest speaker come in, and he talked about... Uh, Jesus becoming a man and dying. And we had a couple of the, the Muslim guys, and they, they would come from time to time and just listen in. And it was, it was okay. It was fine. They were listening to the scriptures. And they really struggled with the concept of God dying because it's quite weird that an all-powerful would actually die. But that's what God actually did. He became like us so that he could break this curse and, and free us. And Hebrews chapter 2 explains a lot of why he had to become a human. And so let's, let's take a look at this. And it's, it's startling, really. Um, I'll read the first verse of chapter 2. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed of the things we have heard, lest we drift away. So... If you're ever in my Bible study and the word therefore comes up, I'll always ask this question, what is the therefore therefore? 
What's it there for? So it always refers to what was talked about previously. And the previous uh, chapter one starts out with Jesus being better than angels. And the book of Hebrews is all about why he's better than. He's better than angels. He's better than Moses. He, he's better than anything you could possibly think. He's better. And the reason why the writer wrote this book, obviously wrote it to Hebrew people. So this is people who grew up in Jewish religion. They were so fundamentally entrenched in it. And when they came to Christ, it was easier for them to go back to things that they knew because you get used to traditions. You get used to how you do things and you always, it always has that sort of pull. And so he writes this, that they wouldn't go back to that. They would stay close to Christ and allow, allow his righteousness to rule in their lives. So he's better than angels and he's better than angels because he's actually deity. And that's the first chapter shows that Jesus is God. And in this chapter, he's going to tell us about Jesus being man, which is quite an interesting concept as well. It's like, well, is he God or is he man? He is 100% God, and yet he's 100% man. And that's important that we understand this because there are many people out there and many cult groups who will say that Jesus wasn't God. He was an angel. He was all sorts of things, but the scriptures tell us He's not 50% God, he's not 50% man, he's 100% God, and he is 100% man. And he is quite unique in this, in how he restores humanity back to himself. So therefore, because he's better than angels, because he is deity, well, we should give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard. Earnest heed, it means we need to look at this in a, a, a very particularly, and we need to not only listen, we need to apply this to our lives, take it in and live by it. We're on Tuesday night, Ben's taking the, 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 the young adults, and some of you guys have already gone through this, an inductive Bible study. And it's just learning how to look at the Bible, how we observe things, how we interpret them. And once you get that information, how do we apply this to our lives. How do I take that on board and how do I use this? Because it's good to have head knowledge, but you need more. You need to apply it to our lives. How do I make this real? How do I allow Jesus to work in my life? And so here he's saying, we, again, the writers including himself, which would give us a clue in this. If the writer says that we need, to, he needs to take heed, we should, if a writer of a scriptural book in the, in the Bible would write that we need to take heed, gee, we should look at this too. We should apply this as well. Because he was thinking to himself, there's possibility that I might not take heed. And look what it says, well, if we don't take heed, lest we drift away. And drifting always basically comes to, it comes from doing nothing. If you put something in a, in a current, eventually it just drifts away. If it's not anchored, it just goes away. So the same thing in our lives. If we're not in the scriptures, if we're not relating to Jesus, if we're not praying, guess what happens to us? We just start to drift and all of a sudden we're like, how did I get here? You just drift away. There is some effort that he asked you to put in. So there's a concern here that the readers 
the Hebrews, the people who grew up in the religion, if they didn't stick close to Jesus, they could drift away. Same thing would happen to us. We all bring experiences. We all bring uh, uh, traditions, all sorts of things we c- can happen to us and we just drift back and all of a sudden we drift away from him. That's the concern. Two to four. For if the words spoken through angels prove steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. When you read this, it can become a little bit confusing. He gives it a, a sort of a dramatic flair. In verse two, he starts out and says, if the words spoken through angels prove steadfast, well, the question is, what word spoken through angels? You know, what is this? Well, when we read the book of Exodus, we read that Moses went up on a mountain, okay, and he received the law from God. And that's the only thing we're told. We're not told any more about this. But when we go into the New Testament, the New Testament starts revealing some other truths to us. So we'll go and look at Acts chapter 7 about this event. Acts chapter 7 you guys got the things up there? You can, you can pop that on there so they can see it as well. Acts chapter 7, and this is Stephen giving his speech in the book of Acts, verse 52. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become betrayers and murderers, who, ha- who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. So here's a little thing that the, the Stephen starts to introduce here that the law was actually given through angels to Moses, which would have been a cool event, a very cool event to be up and in, into that. The book of Galatians also tells us a little bit more. So when Paul's writing the book of Galatians, uh, chapter three, verse 19, he talks about the law again. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. So again, the New Testament is revealing more of this event. So when you look at the book of Hebrews and it says the word spoken through angels proves steadfast. So this word of God, the law proved steadfast. It proved correct. It proved right. The law says that every person is guilty. And when you break the law, there is... This is, in a, in a way, it says a just reward. If you break it, if you're disobedient, just reward basically means judgment. You're going to get, because you broke the law, you're going to get what you deserve. So if that is proven to be correct, and it is correct, because if you don't think it's correct, read the law and try and keep it. Like, you will fail instantly. Like, y- y- within five minutes, you'll break it. It's impossible. And if you break one, you break them all, the Bible tells us. So verse 3 says, 
How shall we escape? How do you escape that judgment? How are you going to escape the word that's true, the law that's true? How do you escape it? If we neglect so great a salvation, if we neglect the salvation that Jesus provides, how on earth are you going to escape judgment? It's impossible. You can't do it. And that's why he tells us this. There's a salvation message that Jesus gives, and there's a a, a law that's given through Moses. They're two separate things. And the issue here is neglect. We can neglect this. It can happen. We don't rely on what he's done for us. And it's an issue. I want you to look at how he's described this. Hopefully you guys have your Bibles open. It talks about salvation. It says, the salvation is described as great. Don't overlook when there's these adjectives in scripture. It's a great salvation. Why is it great? Well, for one, look at who provides it. Jesus provides the salvation. It's great. Look at what it does. It takes sinners who are going to hell and brings them into a relationship with God and gives them eternal life. That's great. And it's also great because it cost Jesus his life. It was costly. It cost him something. So when you look at the salvation, it is great. Do not neglect it. It is awesome how great it is. And this salvation message, it tells us in verse 3, it first began, it was spoken by the Lord himself. Next, it was given as a testimony by those who heard it, the disciples. And then verse four, it then tells us, God bore witness both of signs and wonders. And in scripture, signs and wonders always follow the word. We learn that often and we see it often. God gives his word and he confirms it by his word or through signs and wonders never in the opposite way. And when you see signs and wonders as the uh, first and foremost thing in churches or wherever, be careful, be careful. He confirms it with signs and wonders. And these gifts, and I'll just, he throws a little bit in here at the end, it's according to his own will. The gifts are according to what, how God wants it to be done, not by man. Man can't orchestrate these things, only God can, okay? So he's setting this, foundation. And the logic quite simple. In chapter one, Jesus is better than angels, okay? So in the start of chapter two, his message is better. So if the angel's message of the law and Jesus's message of salvation and Jesus is better than the angels, well, logically, who do you think should have more precedent? Who should we listen to? Jesus. It just makes logical sense that that would happen. Don't neglect Jesus' word of salvation. Don't go backwards. It's that important. We'll move on to chapter, or to verse five. Verse five, we see he now transitions to Jesus being better because he's human. And you're like, what? How can that possibly be? 
Like that's, how can, he, how can that be a good thing? But the writer's going to tell us why. And this has awesome implications for us and how we relate to him. And it's awesome what he, what he actually displays here. Verse 5. For he has, not the put, he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subject to angels, but one testified in a certain place saying, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. So this is um, the, the, the Old Testament scriptures here that he refers to is a psalm written by David. It's Psalm 8. But before that, he talks about in verse 5, he has not put the world under control of the angels. He's actually given control of the world to humanity, to humans. In Genesis chapter 1, and it shouldn't be on there because I, I gave the, uh, the verses to the guys yesterday and I uh, was preparing a little bit last night as well. Um, so in the book of Genesis, when God creates Adam and Eve, Adam, and he says um, in verse six, then God said, let us make man in our own image according to our own likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And verse 28, then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. When God created Adam, he gave dominion. He gave rule to him, okay? He did not give this to angels. Never once that we see in scripture that he ever gave any dominion to angels. He gave it to mankind, okay? And that's important to understand that because mankind lost this. So Adam sinned, and when Adam sinned, he lost it. And we'll, we'll talk about this in a, in a little bit. So the angels do not get authority, but mankind does. He's given to it by God. Then he talks about, in verse 6, he refers to this psalm. This psalm, it's a portion of a psalm that David wrote, 4 to 6. But to better understand it, to really get blown away by it, you read the verse before it. Hopefully I haven't lost my place. Okay, I've got it. So Psalm 8, verse 3, when David's writing this, he's blown away by how good God is. Actually, I'll read the first three, three, three verses. It starts out, O Lord our God, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Sounds like a good title for a song or something like that. Maybe Ian might take that hint. I don't know. Um, you have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you made silence, the enemy and the avenger. Verse three, listen to this. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, 
and the stars which you have ordained. He's blown away by looking at creation. He looks at the stars. He looks at the moon. And he's like, the God of the universe, the God who created all these things, like how vast is our universe? And it's almost like, oh my God, the power is unreal. And yet he then turns in the next verse, we see this in the book of Hebrews, which he's going to quote, what is man that you'll be mindful of him? What is the son of man that you take care of him? Why do you look on mankind? Why do you look at me? Like you've created this universe that, that works, that orbits, that does all this unbelievable stuff, just the size of the earth. And yet he looks at me, he looks at you and he cares. Like David's blown away by this. Unbelievable that man, that he would look on mankind like this. It is truly remarkable. And then he keeps, continues on. He says, you made him a lower than the angels. So in the hierarchy of, I guess, importance of strength, you got God, then you got angels, and then you got mankind. We're nowhere near in strength at angels. Nowhere near. And angels are important to Jewish people. When Jewish people uh, in their religion Angels have a, a very high priority, you know? They even have more angels than, than we see. We've got, we, obviously we have Gabriel, we learn of and other ones, but they have this whole hierarchy of angels and it's very important. But he says, mankind, you're a little lower than angels. But then he goes into this, tells us this and after that, mankind, you've crowned him with glory and honor unreal that God would crown mankind with glory and honor. And then he continues on. He says, God, you have put all things in subjection under mankind, under his feet. That's, that blows David away. Obviously, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he, he sends this out, that he gives mankind glory and honor, and he says, all things are subject to him. And you go, that's, that's mind-blowing. And yet there's a problem. We don't see this. We don't see this. It was given to Adam, but Adam lost it when he sinned. He wasn't, he was no, he was subject to all the things and instead of being power, have power over them, he lost it all. How can this possibly be? How can this promise that mankind has authority over everything? I don't see it. But that's okay because the scripture continues on and gives us the answer. We'll continue on in verse 8 and 9. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. So if for some reason we don't quite understand from the psalm that everything's put under subjection to mankind, he reinforces it, the writer does, and we don't actually know who wrote the book of Hebrews. You know, many people think it could be Paul. It could be someone else. We don't know. 
But if you look at the chapter one, uh, verse one, the author starts out with God, which is tremendous. We don't know. God's always the author of all this. He just uses man to, to write it. He tells us that all is put in subjection under him. He left nothing. That means everything is subject to mankind. He left nothing out. The writer makes this perfectly clear, and yet he says the same thing that we're thinking. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. We don't see this. This is not how it is. So how can this possibly be? We don't yet see it. Again, Adam lost his dominion when he sinned. So how can we do this? And look at verse 9. What do we see? We see Jesus. And he's going to describe Jesus. And anytime life gets hard or you're feeling lost or you don't know what's going on, your focus should be on get it back on him. Boy, it changes everything. And I can tell you this because I've been there. It changes everything. Look at how Jesus is described here. And you'll see a lot of this was described from David writing the Psalm 8. Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. Do you see what this says? God, angels, mankind. He's made lower than the angels. He's telling us right here, Jesus was made man. Jesus was made human. This gets cool. Then he tells us, for the suffering of death. And there's a reason for this. It shows his humanity. If he's not human, he can't die. He can't suffer. God can't go through this because he's God. But he laid deity aside, left heaven, came down as a frail human being. And there's a lot of importance in this, and we're going to get to it. This is why it's so important that he's, he's 100% man. And next, crowned with glory and honor. He's crowned with glory and honor because he died, but he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. He defeated death. He received glory and honor. And guess who else receives glory and honor because he did this? You and I. You and I. That's so unbelievable. By the grace of God that he might taste death for everyone. He died so that we don't have to. And you think that's good. Well, guess what? We get to continue to read on. He brings people to, people to glory. Verse 10. I'll read 10 through 12. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who uh, sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. 
saying, if I declare your name, I will declare your name to, your, to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here I am in the children whom God has given me. Now, I'm doing pretty good today because I brought my glasses, and for some reason, I can read today without them. I don't know. Maybe I'm getting younger, and I'm improving like a fine wine. My daughter was like, you're not going to have a stupid joke again, will you today, Dad? And I'm like, yeah. That wasn't a joke. That was true. So, verse 10, it tells us a little bit more about why it's so fitting for him to be human. It was fitting. It was perfect for him to be human. Why was it fitting? It tells us. He's made perfect through suffering. Why? Because if he becomes human, he can experience suffering. If he does not become human, if he stays deity, he's not going to suffer. He's not going to experience that. But he laid aside deity to become humanity, to experience suffer, suffering. Deity takes on humanity to suffer for us. That's called love. That just blows me away, and it should blow you away, that deity would take on humanity to suffer for us. That's love. That's love. That's an amazing God. Another reason it's fitting for us because he's the captain, he's the leader of our salvation. He's the one who leads us. He goes before us. He's the first one. He's a guy who doesn't sit back and give instructions like a, maybe a a general who won't go with his troops. He goes with his troops. He's the captain. He goes with us. He leads us in there. And he's perfect. He's perfect because he's human. He's similar to us. He's the perfect one. It just makes everything about him. That's why he's perfect, because he can relate to us. He's like us. It's, it's just awesome. Verse 11, we look at sanctification. He who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified. And sanctification is being set apart. In Scripture, it's a past, present, and future thing. There are certain times in Scripture will, it will tell you you are sanctified. There are certain parts in Scripture will tell you you're being sanctified. It's a process. And then it, you'll, you will be sanctified again. It's a future thing. They're all true. They're all true but it's being set apart. So it tells us that he sanctifies and those who are being sanctified, the sanctifier and the sanctified. I think that's a word, I think. Um, but they're together. The sanctification is the main thing. They're together. And Jesus says, or the, script, the writer says here, you are one. You are one together. In humanity, that makes sense. And look at how he looks upon us because this is really cool. Because sometimes we, we, we struggle in our relationship with God. 
But look at how he looks at us. It tells us because he's human, because we're one, he is not ashamed to call them brethren. He is not ashamed of us. Of all our failings, of all our misdoings, of all our yuckiness, he's not ashamed of us. He's not ashamed to call you and me a brother or a sister, which is just unreal. Why? Because he took off deity, became humanity. He understands it. He understands it. And you're like, he is not ashamed of us. That should free us to no degree. He's not ashamed of you. He doesn't sit there and put his head down and go, oh my God, I'm with Bob. He doesn't say that. He's not ashamed of me. And that he's the lifter of our heads, scripture tells us. And being not ashamed of us, verses 12, 12 and 13 show three Old Testament examples to prove this point that he's not ashamed of us. Verse 12, it says, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praises to you. This is so cool. This is so cool. He is amongst people. He enjoyed, when he walked planet earth, he enjoyed being among his brothers and sisters in worshiping the Father. He was there praising God and he loved being next to other people who were praising the Father. That is unreal. That tells us he enjoys the company of us praising God. That's why you'll see me in the foyer pushing you in here to be here when worship starts. Like Jesus loves praising the Father. We should do the same. And he loves being amongst his people. That is, that is really comforting and really encouraging. That, that is, that it, it's awesome. It's awesome. He really loves being with you and me. That is so cool. He's not ashamed of us. The next one, it says, I will put my trust in him. Jesus had no problem trusting the father and we are the same. We trust God. And as we grow and mature, we trust God more with things. Trust him. We have that connection. He trusts God. We trust God. We're as one. And then here I am. He, uh, uh, he, it's another scripture from Isaiah. Here I am in the children whom God has given me. There's a family association. Jesus loves being there. He has a, because he's human, there's a family association. And listen, he likes, he's there and he likes being with the children whom God has given him. It's, they're cherished. It's like when someone gives you something that's important. You, you might say, you know, like uh, your mother or father gave you something before you died and you might hold on to that. It's, it's a keepsake. It's something important. It's extremely important. It's something, it's a, it's something that's given. God the Father gave 
you and me, to Jesus. And he's going to hold on to that. He's not ashamed of us. It's so cool to understand about this because of his humanity. He loves being with us. And we'll finish in 14 through, uh, actually we won't finish in 14 to 16. I still have more to say on that. But 14 through 16. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Again, he's going to talk more about humanity and Jesus' humanity. And he says, just as children have partaken of flesh and blood, it's just another way of saying, I'm human. We're human. It tells us he himself likewise shared in the same. Reinforcing that Jesus was 100% human like you and me. Okay? And why? Scripture tells us here that through his death he might destroy. Now the word destroy, we look at destroy and it's like annihilate. But this word destroy means to, um, uh, to render inoperative. So basically the power that Satan has is broken. It's rendered inoperative. It's like, you know, it's like a machine that's working. He just goes, no longer, no longer working. It's broken. And through his death, he might destroy the devil and his work. Again, if he's not human, he can't die. And if he doesn't die... He can't break that, that power. He's destroyed death and the bondage to it. When Jesus died on that cross, Satan was thinking, you beaut, I've won. I've won. That's what he was thinking. But you know what happened on the third day? Jesus rose from the dead. He destroyed death. He rendered it inoperative. He defeated death and he defeats Satan. And then Satan's going, oh no. Jesus is one. It's awesome. Verse 15, and when he breaks this power of death, he releases those through fear of death that they were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now, the process of dying can be fearful. I know like you guys probably know, you know, what, nine months ago or 10 months ago, you know, I had the diagnosis of cancer. And the first, when you hear that, boy, it scares the living daylights out of you. And some of you are in this room know this. Um, in your own lives. It's scary. But it's the process of dying. Was I fearful of the moment of death and being with? No, because I know who I trust and I know what my future is. It, 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 it's, it's, 
a friend of mine at work, his, his father-in-law died last night. And the great thing about the whole situation is they're all believers and his father-in-law is a believer. Like, unreal. Could you imagine what his father-in-law is thinking right now? You know? Unreal. Unreal that all the pain's gone, that he sees Jesus face to face finally. And it's just like, wow, super duper, you know? And so for us, Jesus takes away that fear. We know where we're going, not because we've done anything, but because of who he is and what he has done. Jesus came, he died on the cross, he was buried and three days later, rose from the dead to give us new life. We have life. Death has no hold on us. We have life. And he's done that. Verse 16, it, this is an interesting one. For indeed, he does not aid, give aid to angels, but does give aid to the seed of Abraham. It's probably, a, it's a, the translation's a bit hard sometimes. It's sometimes... Uh, more rightly, it's probably he, um, he takes on the nature. He doesn't take on the nature of angels. He actually takes on the nature of humanity. Angels don't need to be saved. Angels can't save. But humanity needs to be saved. And Jesus becoming human saves, which is just fantastic. But you could also say he does give aid because he does help us. It's true. And here's a little application for the last bit of this. And this is important to us. It's important to me. If anyone in this room needs to hear this, it's me. It's me. I'm teaching myself. And hopefully you guys learn this too. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation, that funny word, propitiation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Wow, this is awesome. Therefore, so what's it there for? Because of all we've talked about, that Jesus had to come and fulfill the promise to humanity, that, he had, that humanity has dominion again, that he became human to relate to us, and he's not ashamed of us, he's like us. So therefore, he had to be made like his brethren. He had to. Without being human, it doesn't work. He had to be, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. Merciful, not getting what we deserve, and faithful means he's consistent, he never changes. He never fails. He's a high priest. And it tells us what the high priest does in a, a little bit of this, in things pertaining to God. So he represents us to the Father, and he represents the Father to us. He's in between. That's what a, the, the high priest would do. I could go into that a little bit more, but it's another, another day of what the high priest does. And it tells us he makes propitiation. 
Some people look at propitiation and think it's substitution, but it's not substitution. He didn't substitute it. He dies on a cross so that his death appeases God's requirement. That's it. That's what propitiation means. His death appeases God. God has a requirement and it's appeased. It's propitiated. Think propitiated. It's propitiated as a word. I'll go with it. Propitiated for us, for our sins. It appeases God's wrath. That's what propitiation means. And he's done it. So he had to be like us. And in verse 18, he himself has suffered. So Jesus became a man. He suffered. His suffering was real. Our suffering's real. Okay? Then it says, being tempted. Jesus' temptation was real. Our temptations are real. We're tempted all the time. Okay? And I was reading a commentary. Uh, I, I read Warren Wearsby. He, he's, a, he's a guy I like to read. Um, if you, you'll find his books, it's B. All sorts of, all sorts of uh, uh, subjects. But he talks about this. And uh, there's a difference between Jesus' high priest ministry and Jesus' ministry as an advocate. Okay? And I want you guys to understand this because it's important. Okay? Jesus as an advocate for us. So if we sin, 1 John tells us we confess it and Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us. He's our advocate with the Father. As a high priest, we have grace to help from sinning. It's important to understand this. Jesus suffered under temptation. You see, when we're tempted, and I, I'm sure this is the same for you as it is for me, temptation, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. And the temptation comes again, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to hold strong. And eventually, the pressure builds. And then, you give in. Everybody give in? It happens. It's like that beautiful ice cream sundae sitting right there. I'm not going to eat that. Or the chocolate you know, ice cream cone in the fridge, freezer you see all the time. I'm not going to eat that. I'll, I'll let my husband or my kids eat that and eventually go, screw it, I'm taking it. I got it. I got to have it. I got to have it. Jesus never gave in. The pressure built and built and he was tempted to do all sorts. He was tempted by Satan. You know, do this, get some food, throw this down. All sorts of things he's tempted in, just like we are. But the pressure built and built and built and he suffered. And it is, it, it's, you suffer when you're tempted. You're like, I wish this wasn't happening. You know, I wish it was happening to Phil and not me, you know. The pressure builds and, and Jesus never gave in. So he's a high priest who can help us. And to understand, the high priest ministry is different than the confessional advocate ministry. Go to him. He can help you and he can help me. Understand that there's a relationship there and he's there to help with temptation. 
And I'll end on this one. He is able to help those who are tempted. So who are those who are tempted? It's us. And guess who he's able to help? You. He is able. Go to him. He understands us because of his humanity. Because he became like you and me, he understands it. He's not, we look at him high and mighty, which he is, but he looks at us and he's not ashamed of us. He looks at us because he understands our humanity because he became humanity. Go to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus came, that he laid aside deity to become like us, to understand what it's like to be like us. That he came to take back dominion because only it was given to man and only man could get it. So he became like a man to have that dominion over all things, which we don't yet see, but we will because we see Jesus. So we thank you and we praise you and help us, Lord, to apply the things that you've taught us in this, that we wouldn't just be hearers, but we would be doers, that when temptation comes, we would run to you. Because in thinking about this, Lord, the writer was writing to Hebrews who were going back to tradition, to knowledge, to all these things, but the only way it's ever going to work is if we run to you because you're able to help. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.